All these things are beginning to come to fruition. And it's not so much that each one of them by themselves carries the day. It's that they have truly helped to change the zeitgeist now, you know, from what it was 10 years ago when they began. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Our guest this half hour is author and activist Bill McKibben. He is a contributing writer to The New Yorker, where he writes a weekly newsletter on the climate crisis and, of course, is the founder of 350.org. And, Bill, I have to uh, take a short trip down memory lane. Um, This month marks the ninth year of the Vermont Conversation and uh, you were one of the first guests back in 2013. So welcome back again and again. Well, it's very good to be with you. And of course, even better because you've been talking to my better half this week as well. I know that she's been talking about uh, Georgia with you and all of that. And I, I, I just want to say that it, it shouldn't be lost in there someplace that um, that that guy who occupies the pulpit that Martin Luther King used to preach from is now a U.S. senator. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons that we've all been talking about the last few years to be very grim about U.S. history and what it means and what's happened and so on. Um, But there's occasional moments when there are great plot twists in our history. This is one of them. The other one, for my money, uh, this this last few weeks was the nomination of Deb Holland to run the Department of the Interior, and so now we have a, a, a Native American woman and you know descendant of the people who once owned the entire continent, and she's going to be running uh, responsible for 20% of the acreage in the U.S. of A. Um, that strikes me as another one of those great plot twists in, in our history that made me very, very happy to hear. The the Reverend Warnock victory is especially poignant. You know, I encourage people to watch the little, uh, the short video that he did for his acceptance in which he talks about the hands of his 82-year-old mother that used to pick cotton that has just pulled the lever to elect her son a United States senator. It just, yep. um, it really, I had a lump in my throat. Let's start right there. Um, You know, the Georgia election and before that, the election of Trump, um, this is is the result of some phenomenal grassroots organizing, uh, particularly in Georgia, flipping that state, uh, electing the first African-American Democrat from the South to the U.S. Senate. What is the new face of activism that has brought us to this moment to make that possible? Well, there's, there's obviously been an immense amount of movement building over the last decade. Uh, and it's been in all kinds of ways, you know, some of it far removed from electoral politics. Uh, you know, the work that we've done over things like pipelines or divestment or things like that but some of it very sharply focused on electoral politics and often working hand in hand. So everybody knows the stories about Stacey Abrams and the amazing work that she and Keisha Lance Bottoms and others have been doing in Georgia. There've been lots of other people on the ground there too. Uh, The vote vets people uh, having hundreds of thousands of conversations with veterans, the 
youth organizers from places like NextGen. The, the early exit polling showed that the youth vote uh, swelled uh, between uh, the presidential election and this runoff, and that it broke very, very hard in the right direction. And the same thing really happened all across the country um, during in the November elections. So, you know, organizing is is incredibly hard work. It's it's not just going out and having a rally or something and calling it a day. It's year after year after year of building organizations, of meeting people, of figuring out how to keep momentum going. And you only see it emerge every once in a while, you know, uh, on election day or when there's a big decision about some pipeline or something. But it has to be going on every day for those moments to actually happen. So enormous credit to the organizers of all kinds around this country. Uh, I've done enough of it to have some sense of what hard sustained labor it is. And and I, I just it could not be um, be nicer to watch uh, when people see the fruits of those labors, like people got to see and really got to credit the, the right people after the Georgia elections. You know, one of the things that strikes me is this victory is grabbed from the jaws of defeat in several ways. Stacey Abram lost her election to be governor of Georgia in 2018, and John Ossoff lost his election to Congress that same year. And out of those two losses, I I think so much of life is about what you do after you get knocked down. And this lesson of the tenacity of these two activists and organizers to harness the power of what they did and keep going, there's just something very powerful about that. What, what do you think? Well, I think that's absolutely right. But I think what's really important about that is the kind of experience that you then bring with you to where you go next when you when you win. So, I mean, what do people in you know who've been organizing in Georgia really understand? What they really understand is the depth of the movement towards voter suppression in this country. And they're going to be, I think, among the chief advocates for uh, making sure that one of the first things that happens in the new Congress is this, you know, law that I hope will be named for their mentor, John Lewis, um, um, and that will try and beat back some of these ongoing efforts at voter suppression and at gerrymandering and at all the things that make all of this way harder than it should be. I mean, that's really the truth of this last election. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not really like it was a close election. Biden crushed Trump in any normal sense of things. And even the electoral college stuff, you know, wouldn't be particularly close were it not for all the kind of gerrymandering and voter suppression tactics and so on that go on. So one hopes that that'll be one of the lessons of these last couple of years that we really, you know, should put an end to that kind of shenanigans so that then we can fight it out about the stuff that's really important about issues, about, you know, what it is, where it is we want to take the country, not just constantly have to fight for the mere right to have some voice. Right. Um, What do you hope to see the new Biden administration do in their first 100 days to impact the climate crisis, the issue that you've essentially dedicated your life to? 
Well, let's talk about what is realistic to expect and what isn't. The Democrats now have control of the Senate, but it is a thin control of the Senate. Uh, and in some ways, the results of the Georgia elections uh, managed to, uh, you know, replace Mitch McConnell as the guy with his hand on the throttle with Joe Manchin, senator of West Virginia, as his, as the guy with his hand on the throttle. Um, you know, they don't have they don't have a vote to spare. Uh, and so I don't think truthfully that the prospects for a full on Green New Deal passing right away, uh, which is what we need and want uh, and are going to be pushing for are especially bright. But I do think that there's probably lots of other stuff that's going to happen and lots of pieces of that Green New Deal that can be worked into things like infrastructure bills and so on that have real chance of passage. And I think the politics around those things is getting easier as time goes on, partly because you know the Democrats control the Senate, but mostly because the balance of power between the fossil fuel industry and what comes next is beginning to shift. You know, um, thanks in part to all the people who've done things like work on divestment, it's been a lousy decade for the fossil fuel industry. Ten years ago, Exxon was the largest company on earth. Now it's not even the largest energy company on earth. You know, this fall, Next Era Energy, a Florida-based renewables provider, passed them in market capitalization. That doesn't mean that Exxon's political power is withered away or that, you know, the Koch brothers aren't preeminent players still, our biggest oil and gas barons or so on. But it does mean that they have less power than they used to to block things. So I think that there's going to be action in Washington. I think that much of the most significant action is likely to come less in what we can push through Congress than in what they're going to be able to do in the various agencies to um, really affect, among above all else, the flows of money uh, in the world of energy. I think that the Fed and the Treasury and the Securities Exchange Commission are going to be absolutely crucial in getting the message across to Wall Street that the time has come to stop handing money to the oil industry. Uh, and, and if that happens, if we can, as we've put it, stop the money pipeline, um, then change will come extremely fast. Uh, it'll make it much easier. And I think that that's really possible. The pressure that we've been putting on people like BlackRock or Chase Bank or things over the last 18 months has begun to pay off. In a certain sense, we're pushing on an open door there, I think. And if the Biden people will really back it up with regulatory muscle, uh, then I think that's going to be the place where we'll see fairly swift action. Of course, it would help enormously if, for instance, states like Vermont followed the example set by New York State last autumn and divested from the fossil fuel industry. And I have no idea why Beth Pierce and the Democratic establishment in this state uh, keep refusing to do that. The accomplishments of the fossil fuel divestment movements have been rolling in really with such regularity. Talk about what you see as some of the highlights just within the last year. You mentioned the state of New York, but what are well, the, the, the most... Pension fund was an enormous 
deal because uh, it's $226 billion. Um, that's a lot of money. I mean, you know, and it's smart money and it's money that for a long time, uh, I mean, the treasurer of the state of New York, a guy named Tom DiNapoli, was full on on this idea that we were going to engage the Exxons of the world and get them to change their stripes and so on. And, and uh, you know, they pursued that strategy for a long time and lost a ton of money doing it because the oil companies have been the worst performing sector, you know, in New York state. And I imagine about the same true must be true for Vermont. The, the estimate is that, uh, that by continuing to invest in fossil fuel companies, they lost about $17,000 per pensioner in the state of New York, but they never got anywhere with this engagement strategy. And so finally they just threw in the towel and said, okay, uh, we're going to have to, stop playing with you guys. So that was a big deal. Uh, there's lots of other parts of this, though, that are, as you say, just sort of operating on automatic now, I, you know, uh, that, that this kind of logic of it is, is really sinking in. So in the course of this year, the Queen of England began divesting her vast holdings from fossil fuel. And the Pope uh, you know, is, could not be stronger in his demand that everybody stop funding the fossil fuel industry. Uh, so, you know, on any list of the most recognizable people on the planet, you know, to get the Pope and the Queen, I mean, you know, short of getting Beyonce, uh, you know, I don't know quite what we're supposed to, who else we're supposed to get at this point on board with this fight. It's really working well. We're at about $15 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that, and, and, and I mean, it's sunk in. You know this guy, uh, Jim Cramer, uh, uh, America's favorite. Yeah. You see him, if you sort of flipping through TV in the evening, you'll see him yelling at you about which stocks to buy and so on. He devoted two shows last January before the pandemic started to just saying, stop trying to make money on oil stocks. This divestment thing has gotten too big. There are too many funds that won't buy in them. They're never going to go up. And, and uh, good advice if you ask me. So I, I feel like it's one of those places where people have made real difference. Another is in the, um, you know, standing up for the fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, you know, all these fights that Vermonters have been very involved in, uh, you know, right from the beginning. The first one was the big fight over the Keystone Pipeline. And that's a fight that we are finally and officially going to win uh, sometime in the next month when Joe Biden is going to say, no, we're not going to have permits for this boondoggle. Um, we'll see if, you know, what we can salvage out of the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline and the ongoing battle over what's called Line 3 in Minnesota, another tar sands pipeline uh, uh, that's just at the beginning of being construction. But uh, that'll be another battle in the next few weeks. But uh, all these things are beginning to come to fruition. And it's not so much that each one of them by themselves carries the day. It's that they have truly helped to change the zeitgeist now, um, uh, you know, from what it was 10 years ago when they began. Uh, and so now, you know, uh, uh, there's real capacity and real appetite for action on this most important of issues. Um, and of course, the other thing that's caused that, sadly, is that Mother Nature has done such a superb job of educating us about the stakes. 
you know, if 2020 hadn't been the year of COVID pandemic, it would have been remembered as the year of fire, uh, beginning with the insane blazes in Australia this time a year ago and continuing through the you know, worst wildfires in California history, but also the worst wildfires in the history of Siberia, where they were burning deep into the peatlands and releasing immense amounts of carbon. And some ways scariest of all, uh, massive fires throughout the autumn across the what's the world's largest, largest wetland, the Pantanal, at the border of Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay. Something like a quarter of the world's largest wetland burned this past year. That should not be happening. And that it is happening is a reminder of just what deep trouble we're in. I have to wonder, you know, I have friends who live in Santa Rosa, California, and the Napa areas that have now been hit repeatedly by these catastrophic fires. I mean, if you live in these places, and these are densely populated places, mm -hmm. it's not all just wine vineyards. Um, you know, many, many people have to be wondering, and if you live on the Gulf Coast, where Category mm -hmm. 5 storms are now routinely you know, they were incoming like a series of ripples on a pond this mm -hmm. fall. Um, are these places inhabitable? Is the is the map of the world going to change to well, these know, whole zones? This was, the, this, this was the my last book. This was one of the conceits was the idea that the the size of the board on which we play the human game has begun to shrink. There are plenty of places that we're not going to be able to live. The San Francisco Chronicle did a story last year just asking precisely that question. You know, how much of California is actually going to be habitable? Mm -hmm. um, and and that's particularly poignant in the case of California, of course, because that was always our, you know, everybody's image of like the the idol, you know, the place where, you know, the golden sunset, uh, you know, where you could, you know, just the most chill place on the entire planet. But of course, places where this really pinches aren't California or even, well, the Gulf Coast. Uh, the places where it pinches hardest are places like, say, Honduras and Nicaragua. Uh, the last two hurricanes of this year, Hurricane Ada and Hurricane Iota, because we were deep into the Greek alphabet having run out of, uh, you know, having run through the, the normal alphabet. Uh, those two hurricanes, Category 4 and Category 5, in November, managed to smash into the same spot in Central America. They landed, made landfall 10 days apart within 15 miles of each other. And the damage that they wrought was so enormous. Some people are trying to calculate, saying that they think Honduras may have suffered damage equivalent to 40% of its GDP. Uh, by contrast, Hurricane Katrina, the worst natural disaster if you want to call it a natural disaster in American history, did damage equivalent to about 1% of our GDP. I mean, you know, there's there's going to be hundreds, are hundreds of thousands of people on the move because they can't live anymore where they were born in Honduras or Nicaragua. They're going to come north. Uh, and when they get here, what are we going to say? Because it's not their fault that the climate changed. No one in Honduras burned enough fossil fuel to cause any trouble, you know. Um, that was us. 
And 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 so one of the things that the Biden administration is going to have to figure out how to deal with is the beginning waves of climate refugees that I'm afraid will be a tsunami by the middle of the century. The, the, the UN estimates we could see a billion of these people before the century is out. You have been taking runs at the climate crisis from a variety of vantage points. First, just mobilizing global days of action through 350.org, then with fossil fuel divestment, which has, as we've discussed, you know, really reached remarkable levels. I, I feel like I saw the fingerprints of the divestment movement uh, a week ago when uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was mm -hmm. thrown open to bids for drilling, and they got no bids mm -hmm. from the major oil companies. And I thought I saw well, a lot I of oil companies was, saying it is not worth the price we'll worth, pay. I, 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 when, when Trump announced that he was going to throw this open for leasing, I, I did tweet out, I, I just said, uh, it will be a grim pleasure to take down whatever company decides it wants to go drill in the biggest wildlife refuge in North America. I saw that tweet, and I think I, I when I read that, I thought this is being this is being beamed onto the walls of boardrooms from one end of uh, Texas to the <laughs> other. Um, they they know that they know that you mean business. And my question then is, what is the next frontier of activism? What is the Achilles heel where you feel you can have the greatest impact in applying well, pressure. I, I, I think that, that this connection around money is really important. And it and and for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, when we think about action, we 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 automatically think about politics and government. Our head turns towards Washington with good reason, you know. But given the climate crisis and given the constraint of time. If we don't operate very quickly, then nothing we do matters. Winning slowly on climate is just another way of losing. Okay, And once you internalize that, you look for things that can happen at speed. So while it's really important to keep all the pressure on in Washington, uh, um, you know, look, uh, nimbleness has never been the hallmark of our political system. It wasn't set up to be nimble, you know. Um, um, by contrast, the other power center in our society, Wall Street, actually operates at great speed. When something happens, you know, the implications are reflected within minutes in stock markets around the world. And where Washington is no longer, and this is probably much for the best, really the center of the world anymore, um, not the boss of everyone anymore, uh, Wall Street unfortunately, still kind of is, you know, it's as close to a world power as there is. So I think it's really important to be working there. Uh, and in the city of London, and in Tokyo, and in Shanghai, and the other places that provide the financial capital that is the lifeblood of, of fossil fuel industry. If we can choke that off, if they can't expand, then we're at a point where renewable energy is so cheap that it will rush and fill in whatever vacuum exists. And so our job is to create that vacuum as fast as we can. Um, one of the other ways, interesting ways that we're working on doing it at the moment, and I just wrote a piece about this for the New Yorker, 
uh, new campaigns to try and um, and convince the people working in the world's ad agencies and PR agencies and lobbying firms to stop carrying water for the fossil fuel industry. You know, if money is the the oxygen on which the fires of global warming burn, then all the little snappy catchphrases and advertising campaigns and things are the kindling for that fire. Uh, the piece I wrote for the New Yorker was about this ad agency that worked for Exxon and spent, and, you know, Exxon, through, with them, Exxon spent hundreds of millions of dollars running ads about, you would have thought that ex, essentially Exxon was an algae company that happened to have a little, you know, oil well or two on the side someplace. Well, I mean, as it turns out, uh, you know, they probably spent far more money on the ads than they ever did on the algae. And, and even if it all comes to pass, which it probably won't, they'll be producing something like 10,000 barrels of algae oil, a, you know, a day by 2025. So a minor rounding error in everything, but it's been spectacular greenwashing for them, you know? Um, so we'll try and stop that too. The climate change fight happens on every possible front now. And it's, you know, it's such a massive fight that you have to fight it on every front. And I just wish we'd do the easy things quickly and get them over with. I understand that it's going to be, you know, it's hard, necessary, important work to be converting every house in the state of Vermont to, you know, to get it fully insulated and to have electric heat pumps replacing, you know, obsolete and expensive, you know, oil or gas boilers and so on and so forth. That's hard work that necessarily takes a few years to do because you have to go house by house to get it done, you know. Um, but what's really easy to do is to say that the, you know, sell the state's shares in the oil industry. That takes 10 minutes, you know, and but it makes a huge impact. So that's the, you know, we'll continue to push for both. Okay. Well, Bill McKibben, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. David, thank you for having this conversation all these years. And, and it's great fun to get to talk, but of course, more fun just to get to listen week after week. And now, not just on DEV, but on Digger as well, now that you're, you know, master of all media, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's even more fun. To, to sit down okay well thanks and happy new year bill and um, happy new year brother bill mckibben is the the founder of 350.org and a contributing writer for the new yorker and a resident of ripton vermont that does it for this week's vermont conversation you can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermont conversation i'm david goodman thanks so much for listening 